There was no sympathy in M's voice. He disapproved of Bond's womanizing, as he called it to himself, while recognizing that his prejudice was the relic of a Victorian upbringing. But as Bond's chief, the last thing he wanted was for Bond to permanently tied to one woman's skirts. Perhaps it is for the best. Doesn't do to get mixed up with neurotic women in this business. They hang on your gun arm, if you know what I mean. That is M trying to rectify uh, Bond just being an absolute man whore in the book that we are reading this month, From Russia with Love by Ian Fleming. I'm Zachary Kellyan. This is Literary Guys, and I'm here at the Stardust Lounge with my good friend, Dr. Gordon McAllen. Gordy, How's it how going, doing? Zach? I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. I love talking about this book. This has been a blast already. Yeah, I, I think we've covered a lot of good ground and covered a lot of martinis. And I think we are getting into the point of the book. We're through two of the episodes here. We're in the third. And I think by the next episode, something will actually happen in this book. Is that correct? I mean, Bond flies to Turkey in this episode. That's substantial. Okay. We learn a lot of very unflattering things about the Turks. Which I think says a lot more about the character he speaks to them than perhaps anything else. Yeah, you know, one of the things that you and I talked about when we wanted to start this podcast is we weren't going to kind of brush any overt racism, sexism, misogyny, homophobia, any of that stuff under the rug. It, 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 it deserves to be mentioned. It was a relic of, as M says, a time and a place. But I do think the, uh, the Turkish people kind of get the short end of the stick here from Ian Fleming's perspective. A book that I read recently that actually suffers from the exact same problem is Patricia Highsmith's A Tremor of Forgery. That is also a fascinating look at masculinity Mm -hmm. in a similar environment with a a tremendous number of racist overtones to the portrayal of the folks who actually live in the countries that they're visiting. You know, and it's it's easy to say, you know, maybe we shouldn't be reading Patricia Highsmith. Maybe we shouldn't be reading Ian Fleming because of some of those outdated attitudes. But then again, you got to keep in mind, Patricia Highsmith was the first author to write a a best-selling novel where lesbians were the two main characters. First to write essentially a lesbian romance, uh, The Mm -hmm. Price of Salt, I believe, which later was renamed Carol, perhaps. It was originally called The Price of Salt. And then, um, you know, Ian Fleming, certainly his his view of masculinity seems archaic by our standards. But as we see with that uh, opening line of this episode, for readers of the day in the mid-1950s, he was very libertine. He was very awoke and evolved in his idea of sexuality. And I'm sure Ian Fleming got just as much um, hatred from the conservative side of the aisle back when these books were coming out as we on the liberal side might want to chastise him today. I think that is a very good point. But I also think that there's a lot of the narrative that happens in this sort of two-thirds through the book area when Bond is in Istanbul, that it hinges on these very strange portrayals of people who live there that I don't know if if there's any accuracy to it all. Oh, it's absolutely bonkers. Yeah, it's... I, I really don't take any of it at face value. It is No, the yeah, novel it, derails, crazy. and again, not to make excuses, but just to add some context to it, in uh, the mid-1950s, diplomacy versus the United Kingdom and Turkey was breaking down. Um, Ian Fleming was very involved in politics uh, until his death in the mid-60s. He would have been aware of this. This would have been probably part and parcel to the prevailing attitude of Turks in the UK at the time, based on propaganda that was in the media. Not excusing it, because uh, he uh, really paints 
everybody but Darko Kareem as these kind of half-animal human hybrids. I mean, they don't even recognize anybody from Turkey, resemble anybody from Turkey that I've ever seen before, or, or any human being, really. It's, it's absolutely insulting. But then after he's done insulting them, he introduces another group of people who seem to be even more off the rails than the Turkish people, who are these... We should just pick a term here to refer to this Roma. Group. I think Roma is the preferred term. Okay. That's how they would identify today. Uh, in this context of the novel, Gypsy, which we now try to avoid because mm-hmm. it's an insensitive term. You know, we grew up, I think, maybe with a little bit of that pervasive bigotry just around us, you know, using the word like, hey, man, you gypped me out of the money that you owe me, not realizing how derogatory that was, having no idea that that was tied to an entire ethnicity and i think it wasn't until rereading this novel that i really got a good glimpse of oh prejudice against the roma is a very big thing because Mm -hmm. whereas i think fleming as the narrator and through the voice of bond is perhaps a little apologetic at times for his portrayal of the turks he's not at all in his portrayal of the roma they come across as just absolute savages and that is clearly not representative of any culture on this planet Mm mm-hmm and, and they seem to have very, I guess I would say, base motivations. Like, it's, right. it's just about this animalistic, sexual infighting and murder. And it, it, it's not even a culture. It's it, it's almost like a sideshow for this novel. And I would yeah. say it, it's the weakest point of the oh, book. Without question. Uh, we, we see that a lot in the British literature of the 1950s, where there is a sense that uh, England is the pinnacle of culture and that everybody else is a, is a less evolved state. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he kind of paints the Turks specifically as people who have a democracy, who have first world accommodations, but are almost animals playing dress up. You know, they're not, they're not fully evolved to the point of having this culture and the society and this influence in the world that they had in the 1950s. Again, I think that was largely in part to the, the, the tensions that were occurring between the two countries at the time. But... Mm-hmm. Yeah, part of its time, sure, every other piece of it, British literature at the time was painting the rest of the world as uncivilized, sure, but it, it's not a pleasant read. It, it's, it's, we could dwell on and on about all the problematic things in a James Bond novel. I mean, face it, every James Bond novel should come with its own trigger warning, which, by the way, would make a great name for a future Bond film. It would. Listening. I like that. Trigger warning. Um, but we're in Turkey now. Bond is meeting this... MI6 operative who kind of controls the Turkish office, uh, Darko Karim, yes. uh, who is, uh, let's say, to put it kindly, an interesting man, at the very least. I think that is true, but I also think that is a tremendous understatement. Does he keep a naked woman chained under his table who he feeds table scraps to? I believe he talks about this. Do we, I don't think we actually see this woman. We don't actually see this woman. Um, we, we have some proof of another conquest that he had had earlier that day a Romanian girl who he was just plowing on the sofa when a bomb went off, but he was so close to completion, he made it clear to Bond that he finished the deed on this woman, and then she couldn't take it, so she just ran off because a bomb had just exploded around them. This guy is absolutely insane. He is not a real character. Uh, Bond likes him, though. Yes, he does, actually. Uh, Doesn't he say something to that effect? He does, which I I just thought was very interesting. You know, I I don't, in Bond's defense, I don't know that Bond realizes that this guy keeps human trafficked slaves in his apartment just yet. But this is from Bond's POV. 
Where had this exuberant, shrewd pirate come from? And how had he come to work for the service? He was the rare type of man that Bond loved. That Bond already felt prepared to add Kareem to the half dozen of those real friends whom Bond, who had no acquaintances, would be ready to take into his heart. And all problematic issues aside, I actually found this a rather endearing notion. Uh, Bond, you know, a, a man roughly our age at this time, having trouble making new guy friends, which is something yeah. that you and I talk a lot about. It's, it's hard in this day and age, at this age that we are in, to, to make new guy friends that are really, truly close. And so it was an interesting moment of Bond kind of opening up. I like this idea that Bond has no quote-unquote acquaintances. Right. That I think that actually speaks more to it than anything. I, I, I would argue that after the age of 30, 35 at the least, like I feel like we're encouraged to only have new acquaintances. And this that I true. know a lot of guys who like, oh yeah, they, they've expanded their social circle. But they don't collect real friends. You know, they might be right. people who live on their street, might be their neighbors, might be an ever-widening set of work colleagues, for instance. And yet Bond seems to have none of that. And maybe it's because of his lifestyle that he, mm-hmm. he just doesn't have connection with the real world. He is, he is a loner. In many ways. Right. This is the guy in the service who would kind of understand to some degree what Bond is living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you and I have known each other for 25 years, and and I can finally, you know, just recently in the last couple of years, I can finally call you an acquaintance. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem, man. So after we're all dead for 100 years, maybe we can talk about friendship? Yeah. You know, th- this, this whole thing uh, brings up another interesting subject away from Bond, but certainly in the realm of masculinity that I always, I always like your take on. We've got this guy who's talking about a questionably consensual sexual act and then later admits to basically having a sex slave. This is a, a wretch of a human being in terms Absolutely. Of, of how he treats women. Bond doesn't condone it outright. He just doesn't say anything about it. And I wonder in this day and age, what is our role as men? I, I think to, not to get too political, but I think to that famous Access Hollywood tape where our former President Trump was uh, being interviewed by Billy Bush. And Billy Bush lost his job, not because he was agreeing with any of the horrible things that Mr. Trump was saying at the time, uh, but just because he wasn't negating them either. He wasn't chastising the man for making these rude comments. Mm-hmm. When we have locker room talk, you and I as men, when, when, when one of our guy friends or guy acquaintances, if we have them, is there and man, they're telling a really questionable story. Is it our role now in 2021 to speak up about that? Is silence no longer enough? Does silence approve of it? I think that's a really good question. And I think the answer is yes. Silence does approve of it. I think it's an area of growth, actually, for myself and for most guys to proactively call others out, though, because it can be really challenging. And and I've had it where it's felt self-emasculating to do something like that. And that said, most difficult are the situations where the story that's being told occurred many years ago, or from an older generation, when there was clearly less enlightened social mores. In fact, in a related way, this is the problem why it's almost impossible to watch comedies from the 1980s anymore. Like, they are, they are very difficult to watch. By difficult to watch, do you mean overtly rapey? Yes. Yes. That's unacceptable. Like... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even when I talk about these things, like it, like the first thing I say about them is like, don't watch them. Like, yeah, 
the memory you have of these things is far better than what you will experience them as today. Well, and this is what we were exposed to as kids. You know, it's, is it any wonder that we still in 2021 are having problems with toxic masculinity when the comedies we watched growing up basically swept consent under the rug for the sake of a joke? Mm hmm. And I think I think your point about older generations is correct. I would say I've had many experiences with men my own age having similar conversations. Uh, I've traveled, I guess, more in athletic circles, so maybe I've had more traditional locker room, quote unquote, talks. You've always kind of traveled with the more genteel, bon vivant kind of crowd. Um, oh, they followed me. <laughs> well, well played. Um, you know, I. To my knowledge, I have never uh, put a woman in an uncomfortable position. Um, I, many of my best friends are women. I have a mother and two sisters who I adore. I think I was raised right. I, I hope that I have never done that. But I absolutely have been in locker rooms where someone is telling a story that uh, it does not seem like their partner was enjoying what was being done to them. And they're almost bragging about it. Mm -hmm. And I never condoned it. And I certainly knew, okay, that person's off my friend list. That person is somebody that I don't want in my life. But... By not speaking up, even though I was 16 or whatever, by not speaking up in that moment, was I condoning it? Did that person, because they didn't get any pushback for their beliefs and how they could treat women or treat others, did that condone it? And I, I think about that a lot. And I, I think that I owe it to society to, to be more mindful in those situations and to always speak up, even if that person is uh, considerably older than me. I agree with you. You're probably not going to change anything, but I don't want that on my conscience any longer. I, I always mm -hmm. want to make sure that if I see something that, that doesn't feel right and that I think is wrong, I, I need to say it just selfishly from my own perspective. Mm -hmm. And Bond here clearly is not saying anything. He, mm, right. he, if anything, I would argue is going with this Ian Fleming like stereotype of, of the Turkish people and just kind of saying, well, he's a man of his culture. He's a, You're right. He is a reflection of this. I cannot judge him. For that, so maybe you know what it, it's kind of the the view that that I was talking about, like talking to an older generation. That you know, are you going to change them? I, I don't know. <laughs> you but know, that's it's... an interesting point. Yeah, is he just is he not saying anything because he tacitly condones it, or is he not saying anything because he's trying to be quote unquote respectful of culture? The, the, as we record this right now, there's actually a a trial of um, two CIA agents who refuse to follow orders. Uh, they were embedded in Afghanistan, and they were told that they had to look the other way with some of the rural Afghani tribal customs that involved pederastry or, or pedophilia between an older man and a younger boy. It was part of the tribal traditions. It had been for centuries, and these CIA agents were told to look the other way, and they, they refused. They refused orders and actually broke some treaties because of it, and so now we're trying to sort that out here in 2021. You know, mm -hmm. At what point does respecting one's culture which is a noble, honorable thing, go too far when that culture is predicated on disrespecting others? I don't know. It's a tough, tough question. I, I don't think we're going to solve it here. I, I think it is something definitely to think about. Let me and, order and another I'll, drink and then I might have the answer for okay. it. Okay. Getting back to the story here yes, for a moment, that I think one of the, the fascinating twists that occurs in these chapters, and I, I'm not sure if this is the way I read the book or if it is actually what Fleming intended, but... Bond shows up, and he's just like, screw it. I'm not staying in town. I'm going to go to some little hotel, like on the outskirts. Mm -hmm. I wanna, mm -hmm. I that was a nice touch. And, and I really liked that. One, I'm not entirely sure if Bond did it because he that's what he wanted or that he thought that that would be the right, quote-unquote, spy thing to do. 
But then he, he checks in and he gets this ratty room and it's not very nice. And then all of a sudden the next day his room is upgraded and he's in the, the honeymoon suite, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is fascinating because it actually leads me to believe that Bond was accidentally a great spy. <laughs> it, well, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think that's a very. I think he was a great spy. We're meant to believe he was. I mean, but, it, but it just wasn't like a classic spy move. It was just like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm getting out of town. You know, uh, he he kind of asks um, Kareem that at one point. He's like. Dude, what gives? You pick me up in a Rolls Royce from the airport. You're showering me with gifts. Mm-hmm. Like this is not very low profile. And and um, you know, um, Darko Kareem is kind of like, hey man, this is just the way Turkey is. Everybody knows that you're here. Everybody's playing an angle. Everybody's a double or a triple agent. And it almost kind of seems to exist in this equilibrium where I think he calls them the faceless ones, the the people that have been trailing him and are now trailing Bond his whole life. They just kind of exist there as, as like lampreys on their day-to-day activities. They don't actually get involved too much. Uh, they tried to one time, and the Rolls-Royce driver backed over one to teach mm-hmm. him a lesson. Uh, and I, I thought that was probably representative of some far-flung reaches of the British Empire at that time, where it was like, yeah, we're all are the third-rate spies of our respective nations. Mm-hmm. We're all in this country that doesn't have a lot of strategic advantage. So let's just kind of create some sterile truce to get through this. I'm spying on you, you're spying on me, and we're all cool with it. So this seems like a good time to check in with our sponsor for the episode. Yeah, and our sponsor for this week is Turkish Honeymoon Suites, touting amenities such as his and hers bidets, in-room caviar service, one-way mirrors, and sweaty Soviet guards just a room away. Turkish Honeymoon Suites, the perfect destination for star-crossed lovers or double-crossed spies. That's a great slogan. I like it. So this leads me to another point, which I'm not entirely sure if it's intended or not by the novel, but I think it adds to the the character of it, which is I, I feel like Fleming is trying to set up Darko Kareem as potentially a double agent. Mm. That so many of the things he does are just insane. And you would ask, how is he going to get away with this? His wonderful scene where he has put a submarine periscope into the the the, the, the Russian headquarters. In a tunnel of rats, there is a submarine periscope that goes right up into the meeting room. I was trying to picture that in my head. How is that telescope not visible to them? Uh, he talks about that and, and gives a lackluster explanation. It's but. also audio, too, because it sounds no, like... No, 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 they didn't have audio. That was the thing. They didn't have audio, okay. They could only see what was going on. And this is actually the first time when Bond sees Tatiana in person. Yes. She's a looker, this Tatiana. She describes herself as looking like Greta Garbo, which I've seen pictures of Greta Garbo, not necessarily my type, but I think that was the beauty conventions of the time. Mm -hmm. So she's comparing herself to this great movie star. Perhaps she claims her mouth is too big. She feels that might be her one fault and Mm, even apologizes to Bond when they meet. Uh, My mouth might be a little too big. And Bond just says, not for me. I I don't know what that could mean or be a reference to. I think it could be many things. Uh, so I did some research into uh, Darko uh, Kareem, and because he, did, you're right, he just seems so unbelievable as a character. Apparently, based on a real person, uh, Ian Fleming, when he was doing some work in the early '50s with Interpol, came across an Oxford-educated shipowner, Nazim Kalkavan. 
um, who became the model for Darko. Uh, Fleming is alleged to have took down many of Calcavan's conversations in a notebook and used them verbatim in this novel. I would say that that is unbelievable. And I still just don't think that he acts like a real human being. Or is it is it more unbelievable that this might be a real person? Or is it more unbelievable that Ian Fleming did not immediately turn him into authorities? Well, I think that goes to the point that we were uh, discussing earlier. Uh-huh. Like, I think in that case, he probably should have. So we're in Turkey. It's, it's absolute batshit crazy here. They go to a fight between two enslaved Roma women, I believe, mm-hmm. is the, yes. the setup, uh, to put it kindly. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. That gets interrupted by an explosion and then a gunfight in a crowd mm-hmm. that doesn't seem to have any real place. I believe Kareem may have been the target, not Bond, in that case. We're led to believe that anyway. That, that's what I understand. We, we do see Bond. This is the first action we see of Bond in the entire novel. We do see something that I don't remember ever seeing any of the Bonds do in the movies. Uh, he very specifically moves out of the way so that as he's firing at the assailants, he's not also firing into the crowd of bystanders. I don't remember James Bond ever taking the time to do that in the movies. I seem to remember multiple times in Mardi Gras where he did not take that <laughs> Um, so, you know, Bond's popping kneecaps off with his uh, Walter PPK. Or actually, I guess he's using uh, uh, 38 in this. Yeah, um, that is correct. This was before the PPK came into his arsenal. But uh, just popping kneecaps off and saving Darko's life. And does that scene really have any relevance in the greater plot of From Russia With Love? No, other than maybe to create some contrast in the way that, that Bond deals with the women there versus Tatiana. Mm. The the women who are fighting, one of them, I I mean, obviously just falls madly in love with Bond after the fight, and he he just moves on. Like, that's not not important to him. Like, it, it... it does create a very interesting look into the way Bond treats women. I mean, not that we don't already know this from the other stories, but we see that, and then we have the way in which he's able to quote-unquote turn it on with Tatiana. Right. As problematic as Bond's interactions with women are and, and can be, uh, I do think one of the things that I like about James Bond is you, you don't often see him hooking up with some dumb random woman you know some Mm -hmm. bar floozy or something like that to put it indelicately he is drawn to strong powerful women women who are intelligent counter agents women who are professionals women who would be seen as very progressive in the in the 1950s in terms of embracing their own personal agency and well i'm not going to commend a guy who's still very much a misogynist and very much um sexually harassing everybody he meets Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it is still kind of cool that he's a guy who appreciates a woman of intelligence and and perhaps you know, in his own sad, lonely way, might be looking for an equal. I think he is. Mm -hmm. I think that is very much what he's looking for. So just so we can kind of tie this all together, one thing that does happen here, which is tied in with this nonsensical plot line of trying to embarrass the British Secret Service, is a sex tape is filmed in this hotel room. Oh, yeah. And that happens. Uh, and now, then the we... sex tape is just some remote camera placed covertly, or... No, there's a giant mirror in the room, which has, I believe, two people right behind it. Two sweaty are... guys, shoulder to shoulder in full uniform. Yeah, just watching them bone. 
I think that's a great place to leave this episode. If only all of our episodes could leave with that image, I think we'd be doing all right. I think our ratings would be better. <laughs> well, you know what, uh, Gordon, we got into some really uh, good meat of uh, masculinity in this episode, so I appreciate you walking me through it. Always mm-hmm. a pleasure to talk to you. Once again, thank you to the Stardust Lounge. Uh, we switched to vodka tonics, by the way, for those of you who were worried last episode that I may have had too many martinis. Vodka tonics are essentially water, so I think we're fine. I do not think that it is an accurate statement. But you said it, so it's it's Bond's breakfast of champions from this book. So I'll stand by. He it. does drink one of these, right? And what time of day? Uh, I think right when he wakes up. I don't think he's fully out of bed yet before he's drinking a vodka tonic. I think that might be the sign of alcoholism. Might not be. according to his Soviet dossier. Okay, that's a good point. He drinks, but not to excess. <laughs> not that they know of. Right. Apparently, right. they need better <laughs> better intelligence yeah. there. So with that, uh, this has been Literary Guys signing off.